CB On Air, cutting edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello and welcome to this episode of CB On Air's Rewiring Macro series. I'm Dan Hinge, news editor at Central Banking. Macroeconomics has come in for a fair amount of criticism in recent years, so the goal behind this series is to ask how and where macroeconomics needs fixing, and to speak directly to economists whose work is taking the field in new directions. I'm here at Oxford University's Balliol College to meet David Vine, one of the brains behind the Rebuilding Macroeconomic Theory project, which recently asked a group of leading economists to suggest how the benchmark New Keynesian model could be reformed. Uh, David, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk to you. Um, so to begin with, could you just tell me a bit about um, where the Rebuilding Macro Theory uh, project came from? Uh, it's quite simple. Uh, with a number of colleagues, I was teaching macro in the run-up to the global financial crisis to both undergraduates and particularly to graduate students. And it's clear that the DSG model that we had in place there, which we're all quite proud of, uh, was of no help in thinking either what the run-up to the crisis involved or why the crisis happened, why it was so severe uh, and why the recovery has been so, so slow. And we thought that the right thing to do was to get some people together to work through and think about this set of issues. And rather than just convene a conference and publish the papers, we had a couple of meetings uh, and a large exchange of emails uh, in which we tried to work out what the key issues were. Right, okay. And your contribution to that mentions these kind of two... uh sort of paradigm shifts, one in the around the Great Depression and uh, another in the 1970s, I think. Can you uh, explain a bit about how those kind of relate to the current way that we think about macroeconomics? Uh, in the 1930s, uh, it was clear to Keynes and those that worked with him uh, that the existing models of uh, the way the economy worked weren't a help. I've just been working in Australia uh, where the uh, problem in the 1930s was the huge collapse in in, uh, primary commodity prices, Australia's exports of wool. And at the same time as Keynes and others were working in Cambridge in, uh, in universities, there were economists in Australia doing policy issues about what to do when the collapse of of, uh, um, wool prices led to a collapse in the spending by uh, (coughs) farmers and those that received less um, spending income from farmers themselves spent less and those who received that lower income, spent less, and so on. I'm describing a Keynesian multiplier, uh, worked out by this group of economists in 1930 at exactly the same time as this was being done in Britain. The crucial understanding for these Australians was that unemployment in Melbourne and Sydney wasn't just a result of wages being too high. 
it was a result of the collapse in income and spending by the farmers. And this crucial understanding was what we would now call a realisation of general equilibrium, that you didn't just imagine that savings would equal investment because the interest rate did the work. You didn't just think that uh, unemployment happened because wages were too high and what you needed was to cut wages to put people back to work. You understood that uh, ISLM told you uh, uh, that there was a response between markets that people spend less and that meant less demand for labour and that caused unemployment. That's a, a, a paradigm shift. Unemployment isn't just wages too high. It's a way of thinking about the way the economy works as a whole. Uh, that was the 1930s, a hugely important shift, and it led to a change in policy. Keynes talking to Roosevelt in 1933-34 is in favour of more spending. Uh, and, and that's not what you're in favour of if you think that unemployment is caused by wages too, being too high. Right, and that, because I suppose Keynes um, became very well known and, and the Australian economist less so, it became known as the, the Keynesian school and, and that dominated for a very long time up until uh, the 1970s, I suppose. But I shouldn't say a very long time, actually. That doesn't sound very long at all. That was... Uh, a whole generation, uh, and what that generation has been known for is making sure that spending was high enough to ensure that resources were fully fully employed. In the 70s, the realisation absolutely central that uh, spending needed to be low enough to ensure that there wasn't inflation understood way back at the beginning how to pay for the war by Keynes in 1940 was making sure that wartime spending wasn't too large. Um, this was the same problem in the 1970s. What happens if spending was too large leads to a bigger, clearer picture of how the macroeconomy works uh, with um, too high demand leading to inflation, Phillips curve an understanding that when inflation is high, the expectations of inflation will be, rise and inflation will tend to go on rising. How to uh, manage policy in that world uh, led to the... took 15 years and a very difficult pe period between the early 1970s and, and the late 1980s to arrive at inflation targeting rather than full employment policies. Uh, again, a paradigm shift. Um, but but um, at the same time, uh, there were others who argued that this experience had completely um, undermined Keynesian economics and that what we needed to do was start again with a properly mi microeconomically founded macroeconomics with people understanding the world that they lived in, this, the rational expectations revolution, and uh, this sense that the economy is well understood by everyone in it as a way of thinking about the macroeconomy was a second response uh, to this period in, of inflation and policy difficulty in the 70s, and it's a response which has hung over macroeconomics ever since, and I see 
macroeconomics for the last 10, 15 years as trying to work out how to escape from this overhanging shadow. Uh, very important uh, to have an understanding of how a consistently understood macro system works, but when it prevents you from having policy response uh, based on people not understanding the way the economy works properly, uh, you're in trouble. So the the, the rational expectations revolution, um, it was kind of it, it installed its methodology as the the dominant paradigm, but it didn't manage to completely. In fact, it didn't replace Keynes. He he came back. Um, we now have the, the sort of new Keynesian DSGE model. And that move was fundamental. Uh, the full import of of the micro-founded Chicago School um, fre- freshwater economist uh, way of doing macro was of self-adjusting markets uh, that didn't require uh, discretionary let's not use that word, interventionist policy response. And the fundamental move that all of us, I think people like myself, never abandoned was the idea that uh, markets wouldn't clear well enough for policy intervention to be necessary. Uh, and, And that, as you say, is the New Keynesian DSG framework. And is it fair to say that you, while you see uh, flaws with the DSG modelling approach, you wouldn't want to throw the whole load out the window and, and start afresh? Um, think of the 1930s. If someone said to uh, Keynes, do you want to throw the, the baby out with the <laughs> bathwater? The answer would have been, until I understand what comes next, I'm captured. And it's not a question of st- uh, they're taking something else off the shelf to put in place, uh, like a new set of models to replace an old one, uh, an old set of models. That this credit analysis isn't working, we need a new sit- set of credit models. I know people who reinstall models for credit in. Um, banks and financial systems if you don't have a new framework then you all you can do is rather straightforwardly that's the wrong word but tediously also the wrong word set about amending what you've got one day in we look back 50 years from now I'm sure uh, what we have now will seem strange but we don't know what the, where the where we'll be then yet so you'd recommend both uh, trying to fix what we've got at the moment. I think you, you propose some amendments to DSGE that um, would improve the models and, and perhaps taking research in additional directions to, to find new ideas. Um, and that immediately leads to um, what uh, Olivia Blanchard has called for, a, ki- a tolerance of different ways of doing things. Um, I'm a, a, a real believer in simple, insightful 
toy models. Very simple to understand uh, things that weren't understood previously. Think of the Diamond Didvig bank run model. It's, it's not a detailed model of, model of how Barclays Bank works, but it, sh- it describes a good equilibrium and a bad one and the possibility of a run. Think of the analysis of those bank run models, uh, a use of those models for uh, what happened uh, with the collapse of, of uh, wholesale finance in 2008. Uh, very simple insights. Uh, earlier insight, I, I've been working on Australia a, a recently, uh, both in the 30s and in the 70s and 80s, when the move to floating exchange rates made it possible to tra- change macro mo- models, uh, macro policy in ways that hadn't been understood before. Removal of protection in Australia required you to be able to devalue the exchange rate to make that possible. And the toy model that helped us understand that was Mundell Fleming, uh, which uh, wasn't available when I was an undergraduate. And I remember vividly the day that I saw this framework clearly revealed policy options that hadn't been there in a a fixed exchange rate world and certainly uh, not there in a gold standard world. Toy models are fundamental. DSG models for seeing how the world fits together uh, are, f- are fundamental, but also the sorts of things that uh, um, John Milbauer and David Hendry have been talking to you about, detailed, empirical, careful uh, uh, um, data, I nearly said data-relevant, uh, w- models that that are driven by an understanding of the data and a a knowledge of the data, they are important too. I've already named three different kinds of models and the middle one, the DSGE model, won't do what uh, the initial insights of the toy models will do. Think of Diamond-Didvik model and ask how do we build a DSGE model of that kind, it requires us having non-linear multiple equilibrium uh, setups, which can now be done, but requires careful understanding of the toy model in order to make the big the DSG model work. Think of the DSG model in relation to Hendry and Milbau's project. Um, will in the end be possible to build a DSG model of that set of careful insights about consumption and the housing market. At the moment, uh, that's not in place. Uh, Why? Because we don't know enough about the way in which the uh, analytical, theoretical assumptions of a straightforward DSG model are violated by the data and then empirical work is necessary to investigate that. So we could we could have a much greater plurality of uh, of models and of research projects, I suppose, and those might feed into the um, the equations underlying a DSG model. That's right, and and a respect for the plurality um, that people that do um, careful work with data 
even though it's not fitted within a full DSG structure, uh, are doing immensely valuable work. People doing toy models are doing immensely valuable work, although everywhere in the toy model world there are shortcut simplifications which uh, are not fully kosher uh, in, in the DSG framework. Uh, and let's be careful with language. Uh, DSG um, is in danger of creating a hugely semantic uh, conflict. I've, I've read a, a piece by Cristiano recently uh, it, it, arguing that DSG models do everything and so we all of this uh, battle is a mistake well of course if you use the word DSG to mean macroeconomics and macroeconomics do, does all of dynamic and stochastic and general equilibrium together then of course it does everything and of then, uh, it, of course, it's possible to th say that people criticising DSG models are just criticising all of macroeconomics, and so they must belong somewhere in a farm full of ducks. Uh, but the question is what goes in the model, and that relates to what purpose the models are for, and that's a particular task for particular investigations. And there's real room for conflict, dis no, the wrong word, discussion, uh, understanding, debate, and, and in the end, difference of view about what matters in, in, in what you're doing with your particular investigation of not just housing and consumption, but what the trade war that we're embarking on policymakers stumbling into will do to the global general equilibrium, uh, how financial markets may respond to the collapse in the stock market, which we all think may well happen in the next when, year, two months, five years, at some time, difficult again. I've, I've given a number of examples where the model needed will be very different for the particular task, won't be a full dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model of everything to understand these particular questions. Do you see a role for, for the, the model of everything, the DSG model, continuing as a, a policy model for central banks? Yes. Um, but what I don't see is the view that anything that doesn't do that uh, isn't good enough. Uh, I've just said toy models and empirical models give insight. Uh, um, there will always be the task of of, of having um, a DSGE model of everything. Uh, how detailed we can have a real disagreement about. Do we need um, more than a representative consumer in the model. So we think of the standard DSG model, uh, which has a representative consumer and a representative firm and the government and is for a country. Um, well, 
start at the beginning, there need to be consumers who are wealthy and those without access to assets and others who are poor and are probably liquidity constrained. The lead need to be ones with houses and access to housing and, and one uh, and, and um, individuals that don't. You can see that I'm gradually building the steps towards agent-based modelling as I say this. Uh, um, and there will be... Uh, and and in the end, there will be a DSG model that includes all of this. Um, will it give the insight um, that you need uh, to ask the, to answer that question about that I put about the uh, collapse of the uh, of the stock market? Well, have I said enough yet? get rich and poor households, houses, no houses, to understand that question? No. So you need to add more. How much more? Have to discuss. And when I've added that, all of the extra, uh, will it model a cumulative collapse or will it always converge back towards an equilibrium? That's to say, will it? Will there be genuine multiple equilibria with with, with unresolved crises or not and so to go back to what I said about Cristiano of course there will be a DSG model that can incorporate all of that will it will such a model give us the insight we need that's a particular research task it seems at the moment and as you say that there's a long way to go with the research but it feels like the the agent-based models are better at delivering the kind of unstable dynamics you might expect from a, a, an economy that's prone to financial crises. Yeah, uh, and that, I don't think we know enough about that to give a, a, ourselves a, a, a clear answer to that question. Uh, it's, it seems to me obvious that they ought to be able to do that, but I haven't yet seen the evidence. It, it, um, <clears throat> my, my belief is that the ta task in that field is to build outwards from the representative agent model with only one consumer and only one representative financial f firm, uh, uh, f f uh, financial institution and, and only one firm, r representative firm, Bernanke, Gertler and Gilchrist for example, and build outwards to ask uh, two or three different kinds of consumers through or three different kinds of financial institutions, how much do we need to add to build in the probability of, of cumulative collapse crisis? And when we've added that, what does doing so reveal about the key um, components of the transmission mechanism? Um, uh, I think of the work that um, Andy Haldane and Bob May did, but many others have done on on the non-linear uh, cumulative collapse um, possibility in the financial system. Effectively, a kind of multiplier augmenting process that we're used to in in income expenditure accounts in macro, uh, now occurring in balance sheet work as well. 
um, and you asked me, um, is that an agent-based model? Where, or aren't you, David, just describing more detail of what we do already? Here's the crunch question. How optimising will each financial institution be in that firm, in that model? Uh, how much about the future will they understand? Do we require them to have self-fulfilling expectations? The minute you begin to walk backwards from the key methodological assumptions of, of mainstream DSG modelling, the more you walk towards agent-based modelling. Uh, but to start at the other end, I don't think yet that we can uh, hopefully think that a bunch of agents doing entirely random things will tell us what we need. You can see me starting with a, a very conventional DSG model at one end and uh, a very large number of random agents at the other. And the big task that we face is, you can see my hands moving towards each other from both ends of the spectrum, bringing those bits of analysis together, and we're not there yet. But that seems like a promising avenue. Hugely important. Behavioural economics has told us that, that uh, constrained behaviour that is not uh, optimising uh, uh, and consistent, those two things, um, is very widespread. And we need to investigate in that framework I was describing how introducing such behavioural changes can lead to very different outcomes. But that's not going all the way to uh, a model without behave, without behavioural assumptions and simply random structure. Right. Um, and clearly one, one big part of fixing uh, mainstream models is introducing financial factors. Um, I, I noticed in one of your papers you, you talk about a sort of uh, a neutral rate of interest, I think, that, that incorporates... Um, uh, is it credit conditions or, or some sort of financial stability metric? Yeah, it, certainly. Uh, when what the neutral rate of interest is simply the rate of interest which will ensure that uh, spending is large enough to exhaust aggregate supply. Uh, that's all the neutral rate of interest means, that phrase. And uh, when there are uh, credit market failures, then, uh, and, and financial frictions, but more than that, the inability of, of finance to move from the supplies of savings to the demanders for investment... When there's a wedge there, clearly the neutral rate of interest will be lower. And modelling how and why it's lower is is very important. And we sketched that, uh, Sam and I, in uh, one of our papers uh, in the Rebuilding Macro issue of the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. Uh, so it's, it's obvious. Uh, and... To take an um, example 15 years old, uh, when 
there was the dot-com crash and then the stock market crash in the early 2000s, the neutral rate of interest clearly fell and so the appropriate behaviour uh, for the real interest, for the nominal and thus the real interest rate, uh, uh, the appropriate setting for that was lower and so the Taylor rule for policy which had been estimated on previous data in which there were not these financial difficulties was clearly incorrect. There's a big discussion about this. I think it's obvious that that was the case. But what is not obvious is, having agreed with that statement, what you then do when the interest rate is very low uh, about ensuring financial stability. And um, my view again, the view of many people, is that we now understand that macroprudential policy is necessary as an additional second instrument of policy uh, to ensure financial stability, leading the setting of the interest rate um, to ensure that the, to use language, Obviously, that the interest rate is at its neutral level, but also that the financial system is safe. Uh, it's all very well to say another additional problem, you need an additional instrument, and that's what I'm saying. Uh, but turning that into practical, detailed policies uh, has been 10 years of hard work, which is by no means complete. Okay, and uh, lastly, I think I, I just want to ask, um, how can we teach this to undergraduates? So we're the the policy or the sort of research agenda that we're we're looking at is kind of a, a greater plurality, possibly less reliance on general equilibrium. Is there a a kind of unified framework that you think we could teach to people, or, or do we not need one? I think um, that there's a need for plurality in undergraduate teaching too. I've um, changed my mind about this in the last few years. Uh, it's clear that uh, undergraduates at the need the three things that I talked about earlier in, in our discussion. Um, it's essential that... Um, Students, certainly at the graduate level, have a clear DSG framework in their minds, just as it's clear that um, in the public finance uh, there's a general equilibrium framework that enables you to understand tax incidents, just as it's crucial that in understanding the international economic issues about trade and protectionism that you, it's not microeconomic industry by industry but there's a general equilibrium framework available of the kind that uh, goes right back to Hexerolin and has been importantly generalised 
in every area, there's a need for a view about how everything fits together. And in macro, that's crucial. But um, in and and I I think it has it has to be a core of teaching. But there also needs to be um, an exposure to good toy models. You teach uh, undergraduates uh, the Diamond Digford bank run model and you've taught them, let us say, a, a simple version of the Bernanke, Gertler and Gilchrist DSG model with a financial system in it. And then you ask your students, could this Bernanke, Gertler and Gilchrist BGG um, <clears throat> model uh, have a bank run? How does the Diamond Didvik model relate to that model? And a good student will tell you that the assumptions of the BGG model just prevent the bank run from happening. And you say, well, does that mean that bank runs never happen? And the students say, well, of course it doesn't. And you look at them and say, that's why you need more than one kind of model. Uh, and you ask them, could this uh, BGG model have predicted the GFC in 2008 and then look at it and you see how big's the uh, credit wedge in that model and the answer is it's tiny and whatever you do to that model is tiny and could it blow up in creating a, 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 a or, or rather go to zero and then blow up wildly whatever you do to that model it won't do so let's have a model in which that credit wedge can explode uh, and let's show how the kinds of empirical work that Milbauer and Hendry are doing on the housing and financial system could lead to an explosion uh, in, in that way. Could you put that into the um, BGG model? Um, I come back to Christiana. It's of course you can. People are busy trying to do that. And the answer is, could you teach that to students? How many equations would it have? Is it clearly transparent what's going on? You look at it and say, actually, it's, it's much too hard. Uh, so the resolution is that you need uh, a simple DSG model and other insights and a, a, an encouragement for students to say that policy work and research work uh, is fascinating at the moment because it involves trying to see how these other insights either do battle with the DSG model or can be usefully put into, into that model. A lot of work to do. Absolutely. But it's a lot of fun. And, uh, uh, but more than that, it's necessary. None of us believe, especially with the shocks in Europe and the US and and also in the Asia Pacific region which which I haven't talked about at all big empirical shocks in in the world at the minute we need good policy and we're going to need better models on that we'll uh, we'll leave it thank Terrific. you david thank you very much real pleasure